We are the paradoxical ape. Bipedal, naked, large-brained. Long the master of fire, tools, and language, but still trying to understand ourselves. Aware that death is inevitable, yet filled with optimism. We grow up slowly. We hand down knowledge. We empathize and deceive. We shape the future from our shared understanding of the past. Carta brings together experts from diverse disciplines to exchange insights on who we are and how we got here. An exploration made possible by the generosity of humans like you. I'm Charlie Kennel, uh, the Director Emeritus of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And today I would like to share with you some thoughts about the dynamics of the Anthropocene era. The word Anthropocene conveys the global scale of humanity's power over the natural systems that determine the conditions for life on our planet. The concept Anthropocene implies the existence of an indirect but material causal relationship connecting what global society does to the resilience of large-scale environmental and ecological systems. Now, human communities have modified their local environments since well before the agricultural revolution, but now the new scale of humanity's power could enable this familiar form of agency to be exercised on a global scale. Should we learn in time how that agency can be aggregated and exercised, a long-feared tragedy of the global commons could be averted. Even the existence of that hope gives Anthropocene thought an ethical dimension. What global society chooses to do alters the planetary natural systems that sustain later generations. Now, many experts agree that our planetary life support system is heading into crisis. What they cannot agree on is which crisis or which should have priority. Is our crisis social, the nexus of population growth, uneven economic development, social inequality? Is our crisis ecological, the unprecedented extinction rate and loss of biodiversity and nature services to society? Is our crisis climatic, climate change, its threats to infrastructure, prosperity, social stability? Or finally, in today's world, especially today, is our crisis one of public health, disease, its threats to well-being, human survivability? Now, these social, ecological, climate, and public health threats have three aspects in common. Each is a consequence of collective human behavior, each achieved global scale during the great acceleration in the growth of world population and prosperity 
after World War II. Each is documented by trends in data that extrapolate separately to its own potentially mortal crisis. The experts might have a common ethical orientation, but they have divided intellectual loyalties, which will have even more serious consequences downstream than it does now. Were the drivers of social, ecological, climatic, and health threats, were they independent, working separately as we do now to counter them would be effective. But all four are presenting simultaneously and are beginning to interact. The risk convergence implied by this interaction would lead to a comprehensive crisis should all threats interact so strongly that one crisis cannot be solved without uh, solving all. A likely time for this crisis of the Anthropocene is at the culmination of the demographic transition that we are currently in the midst of. What the experts fear is a concatenation of converging Malthusian apocalypses. The primal fear, first articulated by Thomas Malthus in 1798, was that the planet's capacity to produce food will inevitably be outstripped by population growth. The power of population, Malthus once said, is so superior to the power in the earth to produce subsistence for man that premature death must in some shape or other visit the human race. Now, agricultural science has so far headed off the food security apocalypse, but economists, demographers, naturalists, ecologists, climate scientists, and many others have articulated sophisticated versions of his apocalypse. And a few observers have asked why they are presenting all at once. And that's what I will discuss next. One influential 1968 study of this convergence threat, Garrett Hardin's Tragedy of the Commons, blamed human psychology. Individuals rationally pursuing their self-interest work against the common good when they feel no restraint on the exploitation of a public resource. Thus, polluting rivers, oceans, the atmosphere, cost of perpetrators virtually nothing, yet exact significant costs on the biosphere. Another influential early report, The Limits to Growth by the Club of Rome in 1972, blamed headlong economic growth. Its chair, automobile uh, chairman Fiat, uh, Vice President Aurelier Pecce, wrote by way of an introduction, the common enemy of humanity is man. In searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bell. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself. Thus, the term anthro enters Anthropocene. In 2009, the Stockholm Resilience Center proposed a planetary boundary framework for estimating how close we are to the full-blown Anthropocene convergent crisis. It identified nine boundaries where complex eco-environmental systems cross thresholds, tipping points, they call them, where nonlinear functional irreversible changes in biophysical systems are triggered. And Will Steffen and his group in 2015 estimated that four of such nine planetary boundaries have already been crossed uh, at this moment. 
In this sense, then, we are about halfway through to the Anthropocene convergent crisis. Thus, in the past two generations, the principal international threat to world civilization has morphed from world military catastrophe to world eco-environmental catastrophe. Now, international diplomacy's response to the notion that global society is driving the planet towards the Malthusian apocalypse was generated by the World Commission on Economic Development, chaired by Harlem Brutland, the then president of Norway in 1987. The idea was sustainable development. And they, the World Commission developed such a, a, a deft definition that nobody else has used a different one ever since, even though uh, it is almost a tautology. Sustainable development is development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Now, the interesting thing is that the WCED statement defines implicitly the timescale for meaningful global action, timescale that we can make a change, to be one human generation. It takes a time for generations to change uh, in order to affect change. The UN's Sustainable Development Goals of 2016 and the earlier Millennium Development Goals of 2000 articulated what sustainable behavior is, but they leave achieving a sustainable global society, actually walking the talk, for another day. The renewed SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, still do not illuminate what institutions, laws, policies, practices, technologies, and resources are required to create and sustain a socially just global society in a relationship with this planetary environment that is resilient to climate change. In short, the Sustainable Development Goals do not structure an action agenda. The last report on this line that I would like to cite was done by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences in 1999, and it was entitled Our Common Journey. As we've observed, Sustainable Development Goals say little about where knowledge and innovation are needed. In 1999, the Academy took up this issue, and its study explicitly recognized in its opening remarks that the world is in the midst of a demographic transition. This is what they said. We're in the midst of a transition to a world in which human populations are more crowded, more consuming, more connected, and more diverse than at any time in our history. And here's the thing. Current projections envisage population leveling off at about 10 to 11 billion by 2100. Now, the Academy then asked a question never before put in this form. Can the transition to a stable human population also be a transition to sustainability in which the people living on Earth over the next half century meet their needs while nurturing and restoring the planet's life support system? Now, they spent 200 more pages articulating the proposition that how we cope with the demographic transition we're in sets new initial conditions for the long future. Even a small 10% engineered reduction of maximum global population would have a disproportionate impact on sustainability, since the greatest ecological environmental stresses 
come when the population reaches maximum. The eminent biologist E.O. Wilson, whom we just lost last year, echoed that sentiment. Those species and ecosystems that survive the coming ecological bottleneck set new initial conditions for the long future of the biosphere. So how are we doing? Well, in my view, I see a world that is a mosaic of societies in transition. The improvement in prosperity and social well-being that drives demographic transitions, which is a, a shift from a high birth rate, low life expectancy to a low birth rate, high life expectancy society, that shift is about halfway complete. With countries and communities in different stages living side by side, modern communications make it easy to see economic inequality and cultural divide between countries and within countries. Moreover, depending on their focus, experts can entertain different views about the state of the planet and not be wrong. Social scientists, uh, exemplified by the French economist Thomas Piketty and uh, Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker, can document major increases in life expectancy, world prosperity, and societal, societal well-being in the last two generations. But during the same two generations, natural scientists have documented evidence that the planet is bearing more of the costs of population growth and social advance than its natural processes can sustain. This unequal assignment of, of the costs of the social advance underlying the demographic transition is leading to a multi-dimensional crisis and argues that a grand rebalancing is in order. I think our best hope is to exercise our planetary agency. Anthropocene thought has an intergenerational rhythm. What each generation thinks sets the next stage for what the next generation does, and what that generation does shapes the planet its children will live on. In short, how we think as a planet is what our children get as a planet. And I think our past Perhaps only choice is to exercise the agency that advances civilization and technology has provided us. What we did unthinkingly in the past generation, we can now undo in the next two. But first, we've got to decide what kind of society we want to live in and what kind of planet we want to live on. All in all, we're proceeding towards the Anthropocene crisis without the assurance that our demographic transition can also be the transition to the sustainability that was hoped for in our common journey. Indeed, the geographer Jared Diamond has recounted multiple sustainability failures amongst small-scale historical societies. So contemporary science is silent on whether a collectively managed sustainability transition is a natural step in the evolution of intelligence-bearing planets, for we know of no other such planet. Thank you very much. 